0: And masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do at chat
1: Greg Carl Wood and Company.
2: Side chatters from the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it seems like an age of both anger and apathy is upon us, where those who engage with the mind-controlling media allow themselves to be steered from outrage to outrage, letting the loose drain from their increasingly hollow husks, while others have seen the same tricks played so many times it's hard to care anymore. Mainstream credibility has hit a brick wall, and the Pandora's box of alternatives can become so overwhelming and confusing as to cause many people to just disengage. We watch those around us fall to fentanyl, financial ruin, or finely tuned psyops, and it's getting tough for many to maintain bonds that used to be effortless. And this year has seen more than its fair share of situations that shouldn't be happening, from a second major military conflict to suspicious fires in Maui, a missing jet, and the rising tide of inflation. So today we're talking to one of the greats who can help us make sense of the nonsensical narratives and find the threads of truth in the choppy waters of the vast conspiracy. I'm talking about independent scholar and researcher Joe Atwill. You might remember that he was here once before talking about his most well-known work, Caesar's Messiah: the Roman Conspiracy to Invent Jesus, which makes the case that the Imperial Roman family the Flavians, constructed the New Testament and created Christianity, as a way to deflate Jewish sects fighting against the Roman Empire. He's also the author of Shakespeare's Secret Messiah, which adds a few more layers to the argument. And you can hear him commenting on current events with Tim Kelly on the Powers and Principalities episodes of the Our Interesting Times podcast, and it's a pleasure to have him back. The Caesar's Messiah scribe, psyop, sense maker, and bright mind for troubled times, Joe Atwell, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Good to be here.
2: Yeah, man. It's a real pleasure. I am a big fan of the Caesar's Messiah perspective, and I'm not a religious person, so I don't really find it as controversial as others seem to, but I heard a couple of recent interviews as well as the last few Powers and Principalities episodes, and I'm already a little nervous about what we're going to get into this time. (laughs) The way you frame things up makes a lot of sense, but it's certainly thorny material It needs to be talked about openly, though. We're now involved in two major military conflicts, and who knows how much money and resources will continue to be dedicated to the Ukrainian and Israeli causes. So we do need to unpack the wider context that you've been preaching about. If we were to start with Hamas's attack on this music festival in Israel, which you've referred to as a bad plot in a poorly thought-out Chuck Norris movie, Elaborate on how you view those events beyond just that description.
1: Well, the Hamas attack was a false flag. I believe Hamas was created, you know, when you say it's created by Israel, what does that expression actually mean? You're actually talking about the oligarchs that run Israel and present us with sort of the media understanding of the country, which is just tremendously different than the people who live inside it. But putting that aside, the attack itself just had a number of inexplicable aspects to it. And this is typically how you can begin to understand something as a false flag. People will look at the government's storyline for 911, and then you hit building seven, and you see, you know, a steel frame building collapse symmetrically at freeze-fall speed. Fire is given as the explanation. None of these things have ever occurred before in you know the history of steel frame buildings so how could all three of these aspects occur at one time obviously it was controlled demolition and then the entire narrative collapses with that fact the inexplicable provides the framework and i know this is kind of a strange analytic position but it just is the world that we live in because the media is basically controlled and it's controlled to create it as propaganda so we have to find analytic ways to come to a better understanding of what's real than just by viewing it from what they're telling us so in the gaza invasion you know you have several things which are completely inexplicable first i think there was seven breaches of the gaza israeli border by different assault groups this is simply an impossibility the israeli border control technology is famous for its thoroughness, right? They could never have overlooked one, let alone seven excursions across the border. So this is inexplicable. How could they have not seen it? Why was the military stood down? Again, it's just inexplicable given what is known about the Israeli military and how quickly they can respond to not be available in seven situations for over an hour and in some cases for half a day. Again, it's just completely inexplicable. However, it would be explained if this was a false flag. And then the other inexplicable aspect is simply Hamas itself, which we know was originally a creation of Israel. This has been well documented that they provided the capital for it and basically created it as a kind of counterweight to the Arab Islamic brotherhood Which was this was the explanation they gave, which is sort of inexplicable. But at some point the claim is that they lost control of Hamas. Well, how did that happen? Given that Israeli has control over all of Hamas's finances, all of the resources coming into Gaza, the water, the airspace. Exactly, how did they lose control? And then, moreover, you have Hamas's foreign policy, which is to constantly hurl rockets across the border, and occasionally these picuni sort of assaults on Israeli positions, none of which makes any difference whatsoever to anything, militarily or politically, but it does keep up the justification by the Israeli government that they are being attacked, that they're the ones who are attacked. It's not that they are oppressing the Palestinian people, rather they are simply responding to these violent and irrational attacks. Now, this is inexplicable because Hamas has a foreign policy that could easily be successful, which is simply the approach that Gandhi took. And I have mentioned this to the Palestinians that I'm able to communicate with, and they are well aware of it. And incidentally, the Palestinian people are very skeptical of Hamas. They don't feel the elections are legitimate that continue to place them in political power in Gaza time after time. But be that as it may, the fact is, is that if Hamas wanted to politically defeat Israel, they could simply adopt a education process throughout the world, the same kind of approach that Gandhi took with the British Empire in India, and in that they would explain to the population the facts concerning how Palestine was stolen. I mean, these facts are documentable. they are incontroversible, and the public is not aware of it. So rather than adopt a foreign policy that would succeed in bringing world opinion against Israel in the way that the Palestinians are oppressed, see which gives Israel the exact rationale it needs to genocide the Palestinian people. So now you have the event over three weeks ago, what has been the result of it? It was completely predictable. The Israelis now have slaughtered. There are different estimates, but I think reasonable estimates were over ten thousand. They've driven the Palestinians out of the northern fraction of the region they occupied. They're now compressed down against the border with Egypt. So this was the result was to lose even more territory, more population. All of this is inexplicable because there was really nothing that was ever coherent in terms of Hamas's attack that could have benefited the Palestinian people so getting back to my point about you know how do we know what's real anymore right well we know what's reasonable we know what is in violation of the rules of physics we know what is irrational and illogical here the narrative that the media gives us is completely inexplicable. I mean, why in the world would Hamas behave this way? Why would the Israelis stand down? Why would Hamas attack a group of stoned out rave dancers? You know, and this, as I said, in my attempt to be witty, I said, you know, this is like a very bad Chuck Norris movie. It's just ridiculous. The people who are playing the role of the villains are so ham-handed that it wouldn't even be in a B-movie. It's just too ludicrous. You know, how evil what they did is, the beheading of babies, the taking of hostages, the killing and machine gunning of rave dancers on LSD, of whom many of them were amazingly not Israeli. They were Europeans who had come there for this event. It's inexplicable as a legitimate historical event. However, as a false flag, Greg, it just makes perfect sense. Every single aspect makes sense. And so this is how I when I talk about how I present it, I just go, look, story we got is frankly crazy and there's a really simple rational way to understand it, which is that it's a false flag. The Hamas is controlled. The Israelis are in the process of depopulating their region of Palestinians and this is just another aspect of it. And when I talk about it, I always say, you know, you have to look at this in context. You have to look at this, and I'm sure you've seen the maps of the shrinking area of Judea that Palestinians have access to. This is the right context. This is just another one of these hundreds of events that have reduced the Palestinian population in the region and also the land that they are in control over.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: That's a great summary. You touched on several of the points I wanted to make sure we mentioned. In a previous interview, I've heard you say that whole books have been written about Gaza as an experiment in social control and the surveillance that they're under, and we hear about it being oppressive. I've heard the term open-air prison used plenty of times, but I haven't heard a ton of details explaining why that term is appropriate. As you said, the security there is supposed to be top in class for any border. And I hear little threads like that it's an official policy or law, that Gaza cannot be in control of its own water. Israel controls the spigot, and that's been the case for quite a while. And little things like that do stack up to make the case that it's an open-air prison, but those details aren't exactly widely talked about. For those who are still a bit ignorant, As to just how rough life in Gaza has been set up to be, what more would you say?
1: Well, it's hard to go beyond your description of it because that is, in fact, what it is. It's not just a concentration camp, which it indeed is, but it is a laboratory for social control. There have been books. There's one, I forget the name of it, but written by Lowenstein, a Jewish guy from Australia. And he said, look. This is where the Israeli test out their social control and political control technology. They develop it here and then they sell it to you know, oligarchic governments throughout the world. And this isn't really something that can be negated. I mean, the evidence is completely overwhelming. This is what they do. So Gaza is a concentration camp on one hand, but on the other hand, it is actually an experimental region Of human control. So it's just about as racist and evil a construction as humanity can create. I mean, beyond this, I can't even imagine. I mean, you'd be into H.G. Wells or something, you know, it'd just be so horrific. So this is just the most evil thing in the world. And it has to be, therefore, a camouflage. You know, they can't ever tell the truth about it. You have to see the truth analytically. This is how we can approach it. And there's good evidence for it being a zone of technology experimentation. I don't think that can be contested. But then the aspects that you were talking about of control where the water comes from Israel, the airspace doesn't belong to the Palestinians. That's completely controlled by by Israel. The immigration in and out is controlled. They had a situation where they had hundreds of children who wanted to go to other areas to receive medical treatment that they were couldn't get in in Gaza and they were denied. So it's a prison of the worst possible form. They really aren't maintaining it for any other reason than experimentation, in my opinion. They could easily, just as they're doing now, I think now perhaps they're about ready to pull the plug and get rid of Gaza altogether as a Palestinian zone. I mean, the current military activity by Israel has cut it into two sections, and the Israelis are on the beach. You know, they easily went through the entire width of Gaza, and now they're on the beach. So they separated into two. I think it's unlikely they'll give the zone back that they are in control of the part which has the largest city. And so the Palestinians will be compressed down into the southern part, and then they will just be gradually over the next couple of years immigrated into other countries. Some will go to Egypt, whichever amount Egypt will accept. And then the rest of them will just be sent throughout the world. Once that's done, then they will finish the job by um, getting rid of the West Bank territories, which again, are it is, it's probably not as severe as the Gaza region, but it's just an open air prison. It's completely bifurcated. Every aspect of human life is controlled and what will have occurred when those two events are completed is that the vision of the Zionist will be realized. And this won't be where it ends. People think, well, now this will be the end of it, there'll be peace. I would point back to Rothschild's letter in the beginning of the 20th century when he was asked about emigrating Palestinians into Syria and Lebanon. And he said no, he said it's better to send them further away because those areas are part of the land of Israel. So what we now see is Syria and Lebanon, I think, will be on the chopping block after Gaza is is absorbed. And this process is, you know, a very long-standing one. It is not, oddly enough, one that originates with Jews. Again, this is one of these bizarre facts which is never mentioned in public. They just can't talk about it. But in fact, the political process of Zionism, the Zionism that brought about the Balfour Declaration and then the State of Israel, it doesn't come from rabbis. It comes from British Freemasonry. It begins in 1840 when Palmerston, who is the Grand Master Freemason and Prime Minister of Britain, says, now is the time for the Jews to return to the Holy Land. Now, this was an amazing and incomprehensible remember I was mentioning the inexplicable as being you know breadcrumbs that lead us to like a, an understanding of the world. So Palmerston says now is the time now this was to use an expression news to the Jews. The Jews at this point were actually well on the way to full integration into Europe. they were having a good time. There are a number of Jewish intellectuals who talked about how inexplicable Palmerston's statement was. But nevertheless, it begins, and the British Freemasons have just an absolute iron will that goes forward through time. It never relents. It brings about surveys of the region in which they learn about the populations and how eventually they would be able to control them. They move British military into the region for the first time. The Rothschild family buys the Suez Canal. you never stop the process of Zionism from Palmerson. There is activity every single day going forward. The Balfour Declaration has been noted, it really should be called the Cecil Declaration. Balfour was a Cecil, it's a family, and their grandmaster Freemasons is who they are. And they're involved in British politics, oligarchs, one of them in like, I think it was like 1860, made the statement in the British Parliament that, again, he, he was echoing Palmerston, he says, now is the time for the Jews to return to the Holy Land. There was contestation, people stood up and said, you know, this makes no sense, and there's already a nation of people there, why would you want this? And Cecil simply became hysterical and started fighting, physically had to be restrained, he was just, they, they said he had, would just possessed with a bloodlust, you know, to beat up the people who were arguing against him. I would juxtapose that moment with the current situation in Gaza in terms of the bloodlust. This group then organized missionaries to what's called Reformed Judaism, because in Reformed Judaism, you started to have theology which was multicultural and actually inclusive of other religions. There was a very famous guy named Abraham Geiger, and he was writing about, you know, we really should turn Judaism into a light for the world. It should be something that all humanity experiences, very anti-Zionism. And he was becoming very popular, so they hired individuals to go to the different congregations to break down the interest in that kind of multicultural Judaism and return it to the narrow Zionist vision. Now, why did Palmerston say now is the time? Well, it's because at that exact moment, the Masons had taken over the political control of Europe. There's a really good article written by Webster Tarpley. He was one of the LaRouche scholars, who I think are really good scholars, Anton Chaikin, Jeffrey Steinberg, and Tarpley. And he pointed out that at exactly that moment, the Freemasons had gained what he called Palmerston Zoo, which was control of all of the political bureaucracies throughout Europe. And so that's why now is the time to go back, because they had taken control of Europe, and they knew they had the political power to be able to reestablish the state of Israel, even though it was not wanted by the everyday Jew, and certainly had made no sense in terms of the geopolitical reality of the moment. And what this does is exposes what I think is the natural way of understanding the Masons, is that they are conversos. Now that's a term meaning someone whose family's background is Jewish, but has converted in order to live in the European Christian world, but retained a kind of connection back to the past, to Judaism. And the Masons have, I mean, you notice their obsession with Hiram Mabif and the building of the temple. So that the idea that they could recreate the first century, except this time, you know, reversing the reality of it, this I think was something that the Masons in their high levels take oaths. They take oaths to fulfill this. And so this is why I think there was just so much determination is that this organization has taken these oaths particularly in the high levels, to bring about this exact situation. Now, it gets far grimmer if you continue the analysis, because this group also then produces the Nazi Party. If you read uh, an article I wrote called The Freemason Origin of the Nazi Party, which incidentally, you can, if people are interested in it, there's no paywall. You can just Google my name and the Freemason invention of the Nazi Party, read the article. But anyway, you can see that this group then created the Nazi Party. And at the end of the article, I I asked what I think is a very natural question. I say, well, did they create this war, World War II, for the purpose of making it really difficult for Jews to be in Europe and creating the emigration to Israel that they wanted to bring about? And I think they also wanted to punish the Holy Roman Empire with the destruction of the Germans. And so I point out that Hitler is a false flag character. He's not, he doesn't come from the German people. His background is completely artificial, inexplicable. And so the analytic process that I try to use to understand it would indicate that he was created, and the Nazi party was created for the very purpose of fomenting anti-Semitism, destroying the German people and bringing about the conditions we now have where you have a... Debilitated Europe and a powerful Israel—that, unfortunately, none of which is real, because the political apparatus of all of this is just stuff that's given to people, like the storyline of nine one one. The political apparatus is fake, and this is our our real challenge: is we need to go into our political class and expose their real origins, their real purpose, their real backgrounds so that we can understand our world.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That is a really good summary. This piece you referenced is the most recent piece for postflaviana.org. And you also go into how theosophy was a major influence, maybe another invention of the British Freemasonry. But you say national socialism, the use of the swastika, the concept of the Aryan race, the one-armed salute, the man who oversaw financing of the Nazi party, as well as the man who trained Hitler were all theosophists. I mean, that is quite a bit of influence. And of course, Israel, the creation of it, you have to talk about World War II. I remember in school hearing about what so many different countries were doing. I never really heard about what the Palestinians were doing during World War II. And I remember asking, well, if the Germans did all this bad stuff, why isn't Israel in Germany? Why didn't they take the land from the people who did the bad thing and give it to the people who the bad thing was done to? You went to a you know, seemingly arbitrary place that had nothing to do with the conflict itself. I always found that somewhat strange as a youth. And you mentioned that question that you end the piece with. You do say, I have it here, did Freemasonry maneuver the people of Europe like pieces on a chessboard to reverse the war of the first century where the Romans were victorious and the Jews were expelled from Israel. This obviously gets kind of dense and complex for people who don't have a, a serious historical knowledge or who have seen through the narratives of conventional history. And I guess that word conversos goes a long way in trying to explain some of this. You've also said Freemasonry, as far as you can tell, is made up of rituals crafted as a a version of the most fundamental Hebrew religion. So, you know, maybe we have to go back even more and nesting dolls, like who created what? It seems like there's some group that even created Freemasonry to not look Jewish, I guess. It's very complex.
1: It's so difficult to really understand. I mean, I've said that we know more about our future than we do about our past. They've been so successful at creating plausible histories, which are designed to confuse us. They're designed so that we don't think clearly. That's the sad fact, is that the more we study the history that they've given us, the less able we are to be able to decode any of it. I think I was somewhat more sensitive than a a typical kind of researcher in that I had done so much research into the first century because of Caesar's Messiah, and I knew the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I I certainly knew the struggle between Rome and Judaism very well. And I understood Freemasonry as an aspect of that struggle. And I think then when I connected with Anton Chaikin, who was a Jewish LaRouche scholar and had communication with him, he's the one who really pointed out the fact that the people who developed Nazism in some ways are the same people who developed the current version of Zionism. And Tan, he's Jewish. And I think just because of that fact, it was hard emotionally for him to go any further with analysis. In our conversations, he was troubled that I would accuse Jews of being responsible for the Nazi party. And my response was, well, how do we know who's a Jew? I mean, when you look at Helen Blavatsky, or you look at the British royal family, what are you actually looking at? I mean, I I have said that it wouldn't surprise me if even people who think themselves are Jewish, right, and have had the positive and negative aspects of that ethnicity would not be seen as Jews by the oligarchs. I really believe that they're bloodlines and the way they look at themselves in the world are just unknown, but I do think they're extremely important to them. And so what I've said is that to really understand our world, we need to get DNA testing on the oligarchs. That's the first thing. We need to see what is the relationship between the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, between the Warburgs and the Bush family, between Obama and Bill Clinton, I mean, obviously they're inbreeding to some extent, but how do they determine who gets to come into their genetic club? I don't have any better understanding of that than anyone else. And I do feel that there's a lot of very careless anti-Semitism, which sometimes people will glom onto because of my work. And my point is is that I do think that Judaism and Jewish background are certainly part of the oligarchic power circle. This seems absolutely obvious. However, it is like accusing Italians of being evil because the Sicilians organized the mafia. I do podcasts in Israel and I say, look, I hate to say it, but I wouldn't be surprised if the most mind-controlled and deluded group are the everyday Jews that they have been given a narrative that and they are being maneuvered it looks like it is a success because you know they israel is powerful the palestinians are weak everything is going great well perhaps but until democracy can shine in other words until we can actually determine what are the motivations and blood relationships of the oligarch class everyone all of us are in a world of confusion and doubt that has no real purchase in terms of what our history is. We don't know about our history. We just know we have a future and we need to develop better thinking skills. And so I didn't mean long-winded, but my position is, we just need to develop better thinking skills and develop evidence for our premises. We got to start with understanding who are the political class. What are their relationships to one another? And then we have to look inside Freemasonry. We have to get inside the oaths that are being given. And I mean, these are the steps we have to take to start to have a, an understanding of our world, you know? So that's why Um, if I can contribute anything with my work, I just hope I'm increasing skepticism and the desire to think better and clearly. Not that I'm an example, mind you, but I know that this is an issue. So I'm I'm encouraging the young generation to do it better than I did, certainly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that mission. It seems like they make certain topics extremely taboo. You are not allowed to talk about them. And that's because they probably lead to the answers that we seek. So if you can just quell any broaching of the topic, well, that's obviously going to help your cause. And you say that this thing about bringing the Jews back to the Holy Land goes back to 1840. This is another thing I struggle with because we know in the conspiracy world that a lot of these agendas have very long arcs. They'll take a long time to incrementally get something done. But it's just weird to me that they have this super strong motivation to move certain people of certain ethnicity to certain places and it extends beyond a human lifetime you would think someone who said that in 1840 would want to see that accomplished in their lifetime or you would think that they don't really care about the common man who maybe shares the label of Jew like maybe it's just the nature of being American and being a a European mutt like I'm part Swedish Polish British you know this is what I'm told I don't really particularly have a strong interest in what happens to Sweden or Poland. So it just seems odd, and especially outside of my lifetime, especially 250 years from now. So that's the weird thing, because you think if they control all the money and have all the power, they should be pretty content, I would just assume, rather than wanting to move people around. I think that they have some kind of strange, esoteric... Beliefs, some unadvertised religion that motivates a lot of this stuff. If they are Jews, they're not the same Jews that I know.
1: They're different. And I think that to the extent they're Jewish, it's just a way that they're able to maintain secrecy. In other words, the religion that they would see as Judaism would have it as its premise sort of need to know and levels of understanding and just have an elite that has all the information. And that group would be the one that would direct history, basically, We'd be moving people around. And to your point of, uh, well, why don't they do it quickly? The key to their success is they are not detected. And that requires incrementalism. So they just do stuff very, very slowly with broad and slow motion social structures so that the public doesn't know that it's occurring. I mean, I would say that the counterculture was developed as part of a system to destroy Christian ethnicity, right? That was the real purpose of the Grateful Dead and, you know, Woodstock and these things that ultimately they were trying to produce sex drugs and rock and roll as an alternative to sort of the ethnic Christian delayed gratification lifestyle. And the reason is is that the Ethnicities were dangerous. They had the power to resist, whereas isolated individuals do not. And so the idea was to move us to a culture where you'd have pornographic males and single moms, if they were mothers at all, and that that clump of individuals could be easily controlled as they are. In fact, look at the fentanyl brigades in our inner cities, you know, that would all be. Certainly, you know, pornographic males and single moms would be just basically the top level of culture, you know, in in that world. So, this is why that was brought about. And if people are curious about this, I would just tell them to read chapter 23 of The Authoritarian Personality, which was kind of a pseudoscience that was developed by the Frankfurt School and then the American Jewish Committee, which outlined the plan for the counterculture and in chapter 23 they talk about they will develop propaganda using eros and then of course think about eros and civilization marcuse's book he was part of the frankfurt school and you know his book was kind of a basic textbook for the counterculture which advocated free love polyamorism and was very skeptical of hygiene <laughs> so it was just perfect for the hippies but this is done not to terminate the population at that point, but to slowly move them away from the structures that held the ethnicities together, the primary being delayed gratification. That was given as a social negative. You know, the idea of you were told to do your own thing and that all of these aspects of pleasure would be available if you would just give up your superstitions, which were of Christianity and. The nuclear family. You know, Christianity and the nuclear family are certainly able to be criticized, but you can also see them as bulwarks of an ethnicity that might be problematic, you know, for a group that's trying to have world domination. And so this was why they were attacked. And this is why I think the counterculture was developed. And this is why, when you look into the counterculture, you look at, you know, the different researchers who found all of this government agencies and back of rock and roll singers and the lsd onset and all this stuff this is why that's there is because the oligarchs were using elements of the government to bring about a change in culture to produce the beatles and then the rolling stones and then just incrementally work your way into you know the punk movement where you start to really debase the people who are adherents of the music And I would say that the fentanyl brigade, that's what I call these lost souls, are the product. I mean, this is kind of what they envisioned when they started this whole process. And you look at the inexplicable aspects. For example, the great society programs where they started to give government checks to women, particularly in the inner city, who only those who didn't have husbands, right? If you didn't have a male in the household, you were eligible for the check that came in the mail well this was a, just a direct assault on the black family which now has you've ended up with in many regions there are no families i mean literally it's been a complete wipeout you have what's called the baby daddy you know it's not a family it's just this was the person who donated the sperm and may have some relationship to the child and may not but there's no family to talk of i mean obviously that isn't all of african america but that is in fact the demographics show this is a very large fraction and it's one that's increasing and no one is doing anything to stop it in fact they celebrate it the rap music which is kind of the anthem of this process is defended culturally you know the language was now debasing you know they use the n-word and talk about debased sexual situations and public music I mean, you couldn't have gotten away with this stuff in 1950. You had been arrested. But incrementally, we've got there. And future is always in motion. It never is static. And I think you can just look at the future very easily at this point. And then, of course, you throw in some vaccines, which damage the neurology. And you can see where we are, where the Epsilon class is being created. You know, that actually wrote about in Brave New World. I mean, this is a group that has no agency for Humanity. They're just occupying a body and time on their way to the grave. So, you know, we are facing great crisis. Humanity is really facing trouble right now because our cultures are being attacked so systematically. And except for the independent media rising up, and that's why, just to digress, you know, you're to be praised for your efforts. I mean, it isn't even a question of how successful you are, Greg. It's just that the effort that you're putting in and the work you're doing is righteous and it's a value just in and of itself. You know, so I'm not a believer in God, but I'm going to say God bless you (laughs) because it's really valuable. Well, I appreciate that. I really just ask the questions and it's people
2: like you and other guests that really bring the information. But I wanted to also try to fold in Ukraine here a bit, too, because up until Russia came in. The headlines were all about how corrupt Ukraine is and was. Then I saw a lot of coverage of the Azov Battalion and claims that these were literal Nazis that we were supporting. And then I read claims that Ukraine is occupying the space that was the old Khazarian Empire. And if you Google that, you'll be told it's just an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. But then if you go over to the images tab and you just look at maps, yes, they were both above the Black Sea and slightly to the east of it. That territory does seem to overlap. Now I've even heard the claim that the overarching goal is to move the Jewish state from Israel to Ukraine, which really seems crazy. These are just some of the alternatives I'm seeing as I'm trying to find the truth amongst them because the official narratives obviously are very heavily flawed and just can be labeled as propaganda. So. With these kind of things, how do we really find the truth? What is going on with Ukraine? Does it involve the old Khazarian empire, in your opinion? Help us out.
1: I mean, I don't know the idea where that they're going to move Israel. There's no way to know because, again, there's this impenetrable barrier between us and the oligarchs. I'm not even sure we can guess what their psychology is like, frankly. They could be kind of a different type of humanity if you know what i mean so you can only guess and i think in terms of the ukraine the most important fact is simply that it's it's an obvious genocidal process in other words the ukrainian people are being depopulated and that's the purpose of the war there is no military way that the ukrainians are able to push the russian back this is just a ludicrous idea and you know, you can see the breadcrumbs of the inexplicable are showing up over and over again. If you look at Bakhmud, the Battle of Bakhmud, it was obvious from maybe two months before the fall that there was absolutely no way that Ukraine could hold on to it, that the Russian kind of siege technology was too good. Everyone was saying, well, why doesn't Zelensky pull back and try to create a plausible defensive line? He was saying, no, we're going to hold this. It's We're going to defeat the Russians when day by day you could see that the Russians were advancing very systematically. You'd ended up with a couple hundred thousand Ukrainians slaughtered. Well, makes no sense militarily. It's like the uh, Gaza foreign policy, but it makes perfect sense if what you're trying to do is depopulate the Ukrainian race. I mean, Zelensky, his background, of course, is Jewish oligarchs. Soros, Molinenski, they're the ones that financed him. He claimed to be there to bring peace with Russia. The Ukrainian people have voted three times to try to basically create an effective Minsk accord, wherein the Donetsk regions would be autonomous and they would stop this slaughter of ethnic Russians in the region and thereby end the conflict with Russia. The Ukrainian people have voted for it three times. Zelensky was the last one. He said he was going to bring peace. Immediately, you know, went back on his word mysteriously. When Russia broke through all of their defensive lines at the very beginning of the war and were on their way to Kiev, he attempted or was claimed to have attempted to create another kind of Minsk accord where everyone would walk away. There would be, you know, some territorial concessions, but then you stop the fighting, according to the narrative, Boris Johnson showed up and says, you know, we're, we're going to give you all the fancy NATO weapons. We can defeat Russia. And therefore, the war went on. Completely inexplicable. It just makes no sense. It wasn't what the Ukrainian people wanted, what they'd voted for, what Zelensky said he was going to do. And now you end up with a two-year-long war. Just recently, they announced they were going to mobilize women between, I think it's 18 and 50 for frontline battle. So this is makes no sense militarily. It's just depopulation. That's all it is. They've already got half the country to emigrate to other places. God knows what kind of lies they will be able to create with that status, but they knew they had to get out. The ones who are left are just being fed into the mill of Russian siege technology, which will just kill them all. So this, unfortunately, Greg, is a very sad and personal experience for me. My grandfather was a victim of the Somme at the Somme in World War I. That was a battle which over two days, 60,000 Europeans were slaughtered, completely inexplicable. The trench lines were not moved 200 yards, but 60,000 people were killed. My grandfather was mustard gassed and he lived long enough for me to know him died in in the early 50s of lung cancer he had been mustard gas and he'd had lung disease for his entire life as a result of that so when i see the situation in the ukraine i'm just looking at another moment where europeans are walking into automatic weapon fire with no coherent rationale as the basis they're just doing this for some narrative that is just so fanciful that a child couldn't believe it, you know, but there it is. We just do it time and time again. And we do it because as a race, as a people, we have this terrible flaw in which we believe the history that we're being told. I mean, it's that simple. That flaw, it keeps us from saying, no, this is not a coherent political system. This isn't the result of some kind of democracy that I can make any sense of. You are lying to me. The political class is a secret society that is arranged against the people, not to support the people. And therefore, we're not going to join the army. We're going to resist every way we can. And we're going to, first, by trying to find better thinking skills, find ways to analyze more. Specifically, the events that we're being told are the rationale for walking into automatic weapon fire, because we really need to have a good understanding of that, and we just don't. And when you see things like, you know, Hamas invading Israel, now that's a really smart thing to do, isn't it? You have to say, well, there's two possibilities. One is they're just absolute morons. But the other is that we're looking at a kind of controlled opposition, that we're looking at a kind of theater that really what you're getting is a pretext for genocide. There's a pretext for genocide in the Ukraine. There is a pretext for genocide in Gaza. The people who are the victims need to organize themselves to think better, to be more skeptical of the political class. The political class in the Ukraine is a controlled group. It's been set up to depopulate the civilians. And the same thing is true in Gaza, in my opinion. Hamas is absolutely artificial. The foreign policy that they're executing is just as stupid and as creating the pretext for genocide in the same way that's going on in the Ukraine. So I'm glad you brought up the Ukraine because you can see that, I mean, this is the old story. This is the Ukraine, Gaza, the Battle of the Somme, the Nazi Party. You know, these things are all comprehensible from the idea that you're dealing with a secret society that is really intent on genocide. But they make no sense as history, as this is just Europeans miscalculating or putting in political leaders that are incompetent. You know, World War One is not incompetence. It's not. It's a plan precisely executed. And so is what's going on in Gaza. And so is what's going on in Ukraine.
2: Right. Well said. People often use that phrase, don't attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence. And I hate that phrase because it is an excuse. I think a lot of times the malice hides behind a front of incompetence. Like, why are our schools such trash? Why is the economy so bad? Why is our food so bad? You just chalk up your hands and say, well, we have incompetent leaders. No, they're getting what they want. They have a barrier between the real decision makers and us, and those people are largely incompetent puppets. And that presents a a certain perception, but no, they're getting exactly what they want. and. Obviously, there are a lot of parallels between the Ukraine situation and Gaza. To me, it's easier to see why a genocide is happening in Gaza because we know these three religions have been fighting forever. So it just seems like par for the course. It's slightly less easy to understand why the Ukrainian people. I can't ignore that Khazarian dynasty aspect. It seems too coincidental. The world is a big place. I've had many people trying to hone in on the elite, say, well, to say they're Jewish is too broad of a brush. And so they'll often say Khazarian. They'll say, well, there's a Khazarian sect hiding within Judaism. These are the Khazarian banking families that started the usury thing, and the rest is history. So that land is just too coincidental to me. And then we did have Zelensky say that he was going to make that woman Marina Abramovic, the head of like the schools or education, which is really insane because she was popularized during the Pizzagate stuff. She's popular for being an occultist who does these weird rituals. I mean, you could say artist, I guess, but these weird art installations that are just blood splattered on the wall, like red paint made to look like blood.
1: It's Satanism. I mean, it's just out and out Satanism. I mean, what Abramadzic is doing is the cake of light which is a ritual that Aleister Crowley developed and is a specific satanic ritual. It's not in Crowley's depiction of it, which is what the uses. It's simply described as a satanic ritual. That's what it is. So this goes to their understanding of Satan. People think that, well, why would anyone worship Satan? And what they're really doing is mocking the term as it's used in the Gospels. Again, you'd have to read Caesar's Messiah to completely understand this, but their position is is they are the group that Rome is oppressing, and so when Rome is mocking their political movement as Satan, then they now come back and say, "Okay, fine, we are Satan," but the problem is, is they now will claim that they can use the same moral principles that the Caesars used against their populations. And bear in mind, Rome was simply a prison of nations, right? It wasn't particularly in this era. So you're basically using as your moral standard, the principle of the most evil humans who've ever lived. And this would be something that if the general population was aware of, you see, then they wouldn't permit Because it is not in our interest. It's not in the interest of the everyday Jew in Israel to have this continue. It certainly isn't in the interest of the Palestinian people to have Hamas continue to lob stupid, impotent Scud missiles that land in the desert and give Israel a pretext for genocide. And it certainly isn't in the interest of the Ukrainian 45 year old mother to be given an automatic weapon and sent to the front. All of these things are destructive to the individual. Democracy has been perverted. And so to bring a better form of democracy, it starts with skepticism, trying to think through what we've been told, what we've been made to believe. And then from there, just refusing to accept the inexplicable as things which are rationale, basically for genocide. I mean, The people that I've been trying to contact and have influence with are the Jews in Israel, and I've been trying to say, look, guys, Hamas is not real. It cannot be. Use your bloody minds for a second. You'll understand that Hamas is being controlled by your political class, and you don't know who your political class is or what they are. The problem is you're looking at the same intellectual impotence that the Palestinians are looking at when they look at Hamas. But you need to go into your political class with your reason and with exploration and find out who is running that organization, because there is clearly control of Hamas from a group that has the destruction of the Palestinian people. And when you see to the extent that this group will even sacrifice Jews. You know, it's like if you read my piece on the Freemason invention of the Nazi Party, and I point out that, well, this group wants to have anti Semitism, which had been on the decline, engendered. And, and so one of the things that the Theosophical Society brings out are the protocols of the elders of Zion. It's a complete fraud, but they bring it out because at that moment they want anti Semitism to get higher because they're going to want to move the Jews as many of them as they can to Israel which was seen as like a kind of desolate desert place the last place in the world that a cozy european Jew wants to head to right so they were having real trouble with this and well suddenly you know the protocols come out from the theosophical society well this just shows you that these big picture psychopaths they're perfectly happy sacrificing A few Jews, millions of Gentiles, they don't care. They're looking at some kind of geopolitical vision that comes, you know, for thousands of years and all this hocus-pocus, ludicrous Freemason ritual business, and now that's a template for modern political activity. It's just not acceptable to any clear-minded human. You know, And so I've been trying to get to the secular Israelis and saying, guys, this isn't real. You've been manipulated. The stories of the babies being beheaded and the LSD stoned rave dancers, you know, I mean, Hamas, Hamas does not need to attack a bunch of hippies on LSD listening to rave music. I mean, just the fact that that was possible shows it's completely artificial. It couldn't be real. How often are there stoned out LSD rave dancers gyrating in Israel? The idea that this would be where Hamas would head and find, you know, a bunch of defenseless hippies sitting out there. This is obviously artificial. It's not real. It is a theatrical event. And that's why I I use the expression, you know, a bad Chuck Norris movie. Well, it is a bad Chuck Norris movie. And so you need to find out why why they gave us that stupid, stupid Chuck Norris movie (laughs) to manipulate you so that you would be okay with now the IDF going in and bombing children. Right, great points. And I agree with you when you
2: frame it as a bad Chuck Norris movie. I remember Chuck Norris movies or Van Damme movies, these cheesy action movies. And I could see Arabs parachuting in with guns blazing. Like that's the kind of, (laughs) Opposition that comes up in those movies, just a simple, simplistic, one dimensional, they just kill because they love killing. And now Van Damme and Chuck Norris, they got to go to work.
1: The first image that I saw the day of the event was of a victim that they'd found this one woman who was a German female who'd attended it. And she just happened to have pictures on Instagram. And she was the sexiest woman I'd ever seen in my life. And she was in all of these skimpy outfits. And I thought to myself, yeah, Chuck Norris' casting was right. But this is not real. This is just not real, guys. I mean, use your head, you know. So I'm hopeful the group that I really, you know, I'm trying to do podcasts on there and trying to see if I can get people to really, really want is people who are on the other side to debate, you know, to have interaction on that level. But so far, no takers. But I just think that the secular Israelis are fed up they can see, a lot of them can see that there is some kind of religious zealotry that they are not really part of. All of them to some extent are manipulated. You know, most of them believe in the Holocaust, they believe in the victimization of Jews, that idea that's being used, they believe in that. But they also are beginning to see the other side of the curtain. They're going, wait a second, this is starting to not make sense. For example, there are like Israeli whistleblowers, one of them is a, a really clear-minded Jewish woman who's talking about she was one of the people who was responsible for border security with Gaza. And she said, no, it's not real. Our control over the border was absolute. It wasn't you know, a good border. We had visual control over 100% of it. There were computer guided assistance to everything. She said if a cat And she wasn't exaggerating. She said, this is literally true. If a cat came across, we'd be aware of it. And now we're supposed to believe that bulldozers and hang gliders can come across and attack the sexy German LSD dancer. Right. The bulldozer was one of the
2: first images I saw. And I was like, that's strange. Just because this thing is going on doesn't mean like this would be ripped down in this fashion. Where'd this bulldozer come from?
1: It is so stupid. It just drives me crazy, Greg. I guess the pretext for genocide is very weak, can't stand any scrutiny. Our media, of course, is under complete control. You know, obviously, they would be all over the implausibility of it, and they'd be exposing Hamas, but it's up to the independent media. And we are slowly having an effect, and we just have to continue to not just educate but try to engender the Socratic process, the process by which people are starting to think and be skeptical and not believe what they're told. The idea of believing something that CNN or Fox News or Biden or Trump, believing something that this class would provide you as fact, you're already lost analytically. You're never going to recover. You've got to start out with the premise, they're probably lying. Well said. And
2: in terms of this turning into a bigger conflict, a World War III type situation. A lot of people had those concerns with Ukraine, Russia. Well, it seems even easier to see with Israel, Gaza, because everything is framed as Israel just defending itself, though they're clearly on the offense. And we now have U.S. bases in Syria getting attacked, headlines about Iran-backed groups attacking the U.S., intentionally saying Iran backed thus meaning well we're going to have to get back at Iran and then it just seems like it's very much spilling over into something bigger what are you watching out for in that regard like what do you consider some of the tipping points where we now are in world war 3 I mean, we probably maybe already are but where american citizens should start to worry about like we're deep in this now
1: well we should be worried already the escalation will be visible when Iran is brought in. They're the military that can be used as a pretext for, you know, using our fleets, for example. And this would be a complete and absolute bloodbath. The war in the Ukraine has exposed the US war technology as not being basically in the ascendancy any longer. I mean The Russian shoot down air defenses seem to be perfectly able to deal with our cruise missiles and whatnot. And frankly, Iran is sharing all of its technology with Russia. In fact, many of the drones that Russia is using are Iranian. So if Iran is brought in, if you actually start seeing Iranian technology used in some kind of defense of Hamas or Syria, more likely, then I would say, you know, go to Costco and stock up because they're probably going to have a, a world war type situation, which will depopulate. Well, of course, like always, the depopulation will begin with the Europeans, people of European background, but it'll reach far greater. They'll reduce half the world's population if they're gonna go into a world war situation. They won't need nuclear weapons. They'll simply have the pretext for energy and food. I mean, they're already, you can see it in Europe, where they're destroying pipelines, they're ending farmers' ability, you know, to grow crops. You know, it'd be very easy to go into a worldwide starvation and freezing situation if you have a world war. So, in my mind, the ratcheting up of this into a, that kind of world war situation will be visible if you start seeing U.S.-Iranian overt battles, because the Iranians then will bring the Russians in, and I'm sure they won't go to nuclear weapons. They want to keep the planet intact, but they don't need to, to depopulate. They have all the tools just with, I mean, for heaven's sake, they can use these thermobaric kind of bombs to wipe out villages and whatnot if they want to depopulate that way. But I think in general, Greg, what you're going to be looking at with the world war is just an end of the food chains and energy supplies. That's how they're going to reduce population. And then, of course, they'll put in a mandatory vaccine in the middle of that, which, (laughs) is sterilizing. And of course, you know, affects your neurology and just the vaccine is another thing that is very troubling to me. I, I recommend people not to, to, I recommend them to think clearly before they go forward with any of that stuff.
2: Yes, I would agree, man. So before we really wrap it up here, I hoped we could end with some advice. I mean, you say you're optimistic, but these things we're talking about, this, uh, potential for European genocide getting hit from all sides. And people don't even realize it. it sounds quite dire. And I know that the alternative media, sure, it's great that it's growing. I'm a part of it with two young kids. I worry about my ability to do this job for 30 years, as I planned to do when I left the workforce and started it. And we'll see what happens there. Obviously, they're coming for people like me. Uh, There's examples of it already, plenty of them but not so much for a conspiracy media host, but just regular people, how would you advise them? I mean, how can we turn some of this information into actionable intelligence for the average American? We have military escalation, economic decline. What are your thoughts on how to best weather these storms?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, the chaos is part of the way they manipulate us. I mean, notice that, these theatrical productions occur one after another, you know, you just, as soon as you get done with the lockdown, the Ukrainian war pops up, you know, and that fizzles out. And now Gaza, you know, so it's just one after another. And so you have the sense of powerlessness, you see, it's because of this constant hammering us with these media events. Right. Well, the big picture is less dire or, Not to say we are not in a very serious situation, but the percentage of people who are capable of real thinking has never been higher. And this is demonstrated by the fact that so many people have just dropped out of listening to mainstream media. It's 50%. I mean, it's just, this is an extraordinary achievement. So there is a basis for a political movement. So... The thing to do, I just say there's just two things. One is your body and the other is a coffee table. Um, get your body right. You know, Don't eat any of the toxicity. Homeschooling and California homeschooling is exploding. It's up 50% year over year. It's incredible. It's because they can see that there's toxicity inside the public school system. This is where transgender vaccine mandates. I mean, this is where... Parents are now rebelling from that 50% year to year. It's incredible. So one, it's just your body, be healthy, you know, try to stop eating toxic foods. And then of course, thinking skills, you know, you want to think better, try to develop if you can a friend, you know, someone who's interested in, in having better thinking and having discussions in which, you know, you kind of go over your logic and try to, Explain to one another why you believe in certain things and why certain things are real. You can do this in an artificial environment and then prepare yourself for the coffee table. I go to coffee tables at farmers markets, you know, and I just say 911 is an inside job, convince me otherwise, you know. And of course, I mean, I'm kind of well known as someone that's hard to argue with. So it's not as effective as it was like 2 years ago but i have spawned a lot of people who listened and saw that my arguments weren't weaker than the people screaming at me you know and it's that public presentation so i always say you know it's just get good enough so you can set up a coffee table and try to get people to engage in a public way and then it's localism you know the federal government is a cesspool. It's not penetrable. But the sheriffs, mayors, school boards, these are the areas where we can gain some political power. They were really effective and necessary during the lockdowns. If you had a good sheriff, right? And we had sheriffs in California that just told Newsom to piss off. They said, no, we're not. We think it's unconstitutional. Literally. There was like a rebellion. It was incredible. So get a sheriff. That's where you wanna focus your energies. Get a coffee table, get a sheriff, get a mayor, get one member on the on the, the local board of supervisors will say, you know, I, I'm a little worried about all the children in Palestine being blown up. Can we have some talk about, is the Israeli response appropriate? And the movement needs to coalesce. We need to really start recognizing ourselves, you know. I tell you the truth Greg I just see it happening I actually do believe that the process as slow as it is I mean we're still standing they've been battering at us for 2000 years and here we are we're going to go on and what we need are thousands more like you and that's your task is just keep developing you know your influence on humanity just every day just realize You have this special responsibility to do that.
2: Mm, I try. Man, you as well. You know, you do amazing work, and I would love to see some of this stuff debated. I know that Caesar's Messiah really sharpened and honed in your debate ability because there's so many biblical scholars out there, and that's complex stuff to debate. I would like to see debates on this other stuff because clearly you know your material well.
1: And well, one thing about me is I'm chatty. <laughs> I'm always happy to debate anybody on anything, you know. But I, and also I don't mean debate, it seems so confrontational, and people are afraid that I'll ridicule them or, you know, it's a, or you just have an unpleasant experience. I'm Socratic. I love to be shown to be wrong, you know, please. I try to look for opportunities to exchange information with people. You know, That's what I'm wanting to do. And if you have an opposition to my works on Shakespeare or the Bible or my position on the Holocaust, for heaven's sakes, I'm a public person. JoeAtwell at gmail.com. I'll come on any show. We can talk and show me that I'm wrong. I'm perfectly happy to be shown to be wrong. You're the man. You are
2: unique in that regard. And I think we gave listeners a lot to sit with. If you have any other major resources besides yourself that they should check out, let them know. But primarily, give them your links and the places where they can stay plugged into what you're doing.
1: CaesarsMessiah.com. And as I said, my email is just my name, JoeAtwell at gmail.com. I get a lot of emails. I can't respond to everything immediately, but I always try to get to everyone eventually. And I really like criticism corrections. I mean, for heaven's sakes, if you think about the areas where I'm talking about, it's like, it's a long, it's a lot of literature, you know, that I I try to present. And obviously, there's a lot of mistakes. I'm hoping that errors and, you know, miscalculations will be shown to me. Because the thing is, Greg, that's how we get better. That's how it gets better is we show one another errors and facts and reasoning. And I really want to encourage people to do that to me, And I will always stand corrected. I want the process. It's not my personality. I'm too old. I mean, I'm mid-70s, brother. Believe me, all that's important to me is the process, because this is what will give my future, my children, you know, a chance. The process will live on beyond us, you know, working with facts and reasoning, looking for the truth, you know, this will live on and will protect my children and yours. So I dedicate myself to the process, not to, you know, some sort of ludicrous media, you know, image, which means nothing to me whatsoever. It's the only thing that matters is the process, the Socratic process, facts and reasoning, you know.
2: Cheers to that. Terrence McKenna, I think, said something to the degree of if a thing is true, it can take the pressure. So, like, I think I got the best argument. So let's have a discussion about it, because I can answer any
1: questions you may have. And Believe me, you know, I'm some guy isolated in a house with a computer. I can make a lot of mistakes. I'm perfectly willing to be shown to be wrong. But I also work very hard at what I do, and I try to bring good information, and the stuff I bring out has really aged well. And so what I'm hoping is just to promote the process, you know, that we work harder at facts and reasonings, and we stop believing in the history. We know more about the future than we do about the past. Because in the future, we can use our facts and reasonings to understand it, to create it. You know, the past is just a lump of propaganda. Right.
2: We should also make mention of the website. Is it Post Flaviana?
1: Yeah, postflaviana.com. I mean, there's a lot of articles there. If they're curious about reading about, I do articles on the Beatles, on Catcher in the Rye, on Ken Kesey. I mean, there's a lot of Current stuff. I do articles there. There's no paywall. Just go there. There's like discussion groups about the different ideas. And, you know, as I said, I just respond to emails most directly. Just send me an email. I can point you to my work and to other people. You know, there's hundreds of other people out there. I I don't I, I send people to you. You know, so um it's a big collection of individuals at this point and information.
2: It is. And as much as I love what you do, I wish you did it more often. I wish you wrote. A lot more. And last time we talked, you did discuss a book that you were working on that would name the names and help people better understand the political class using Brave New World.
1: Yeah, and I've been I've been working on actually hoping to bring out three books, but um, they are controversial. <laughs> and uh, but I definitely am going to get them all out, and I'm hopeful they have really good effect. Yes. Well, I'm I'm going to keep an eye out because I would love more material. All right. Yeah, no, I'll send you copies as soon as I'm ready to go with them. I'm. It's a little complicated publishing this stuff, but I'll I'll keep you a prize and I'll get you a copy, at least one of them very quickly.
2: Whew, I'd appreciate that. Well, it has been a pleasure. You have a way of talking about uncomfortable things in a clear and almost matter of fact way. And I appreciate your willingness to do it. Take care and keep fighting the good fight.
1: Thank you, Greg. Thanks for the opportunity. Talk to you soon.
2: Ha, listen to me talking like I haven't said that Terrence McKenna quote a thousand times already. But, okay, (laughs) well that was something, the great Joe Atwell. I hope as an audience we have cultivated enough discernment and separated ourselves enough from any situation to be able to consider new possibilities. This one got pretty heavy, so I'm sorry to the people who just show up here for the Bigfoot and alien stuff. I like to think we can all handle it and have diverse interests every time, though, with these major situations. I think that, and then there's at least some blowback from listeners who liked all the shows in the archive but ended up drinking this particular Kool-Aid, whether it's COVID, obviously that was a big one, even Russia-Ukraine, the occasional even halfway neutral Trump comment, and this one is certainly going to, Get me some of that, and I would predict probably even turn the dial up on it, because these are two groups of people that a lot of folks out there are just, for some reason, really emotionally vested in, way more so than the Uyghurs or the child slaves in the African Congo, just the way it is, just an observation. It even broke up the Leftovers show because the two hosts, two of the biggest streamers there are, not my favorite people, but clearly very popular, they couldn't even agree to disagree on Israel-Palestine. It ended the show and their friendship. And it's pretty clear that the discourse goes that if you say anything empathetic about Palestinian people, you're anti-Semitic or pro-violent Muslim extremists and pro-Hamas. And every single piece of rhetoric they've ever uttered must be something you support. And it's just assumed there's no way you could have equal empathy for working class Jewish people or concert goers who might have been victims of a planned attack. Which is also something that stuck out to me as Joe was talking about the concert attendees actually being mostly international. Largely Europeans who traveled to this music festival. Well, strategically for a false flag, that would make a lot of sense because it would be nice if the target you hit was an international event. So you could drum up more support for your response by having victims from all over the Western world. But I just hate to see this stuff happen. I hate to see innocent bystanders anywhere used by the big machine. Like I'm sure most of you guys at this point, I've seen some real mental gymnastics used to try to justify one part of this or another. I've heard people say, well, Hamas was democratically elected, so the people get what's coming. And that's insane kind of thinking. I wonder how many Obama voters want to be personally accountable and responsible for his drone strikes. And are victims' voting records going to be considered before they're blown up? Even if Hamas was democratically elected in a fair election, everyone didn't vote for them. So it's a wild rationale that you can just start dropping bombs and shooting into crowds because, well, they were democratically elected, so that means people signed up to be human shields or collateral damage. Plus, it's been a common understanding since the 9/11 response that if you go around killing a hundred citizens. To get one terrorist, well, you just made who knows how many new terrorists when you kill the loved ones of people who wanted to stay out of it until they had nothing left to lose. So even on a surface level, that's another thing that doesn't make sense. Another inexplicable fact that the official numbers are 11,000 civilians killed and 60 Hamas members killed, and that's considered reasonable. If an armed bystander saved a crowd from a mass shooter, but killed 183 people before he got them, would we celebrate that as a win? It's just crazy talk. Even the idea of telling everyone to leave and moving a million people this way because the attack is going that way, and pausing for supplies and travel, how does that make any sense that Hamas would just Stay put while the innocent civilians travel to the safe space. There's no mixing up there. But that's what the news is saying is happening. And everyone just nods and says, well, that's good. Yes, the right thing to do. Now it must just be Hamas versus the Israeli military. The Israeli Defense Force, of course, always defense, you know. And I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but I've learned not to take anything at face value and that every major war or conflict is fertile ground for a ton of propaganda and counter-propaganda, a competition for narrative control and how things should be framed. And I hear so many alternative narratives that I just kind of shrug sometimes and say, yeah, maybe. I try not to get attached to any one idea and absorb all the various takes that are out there. And then kind of just rank them by what makes most sense, given the general way things have happened in the past. And with that approach in mind, Joe makes a lot of sense. And obviously, that's why I brought him on to talk about these things. As for some of the stuff we got into in our later conversation, I have a lot of unanswered questions about World War II that will probably always be unknown. But anytime there is a war or an ethnic cleansing or mass civilian death or slavery, the people driving it are going to say, well, we weren't really doing anything. Look, here's some pre-selected evidence that it's not that bad. And just as you'll have some people latch on to the mainstream story, you will have people latch on to that counter propaganda, that camouflage, to use Joe's term, and think that's the real answer. It's not always as simple as counter-narrative equals truth. You can't be that lazy, sorry to say. But the reality is we have leaders that love to routinely arrange for us to kill each other or at least hate each other. And that is the core problem that we have to address. And I think Joe would agree. So for my money, that was a really great info-rich interview that took us to a lot of unexpected places and found us some signal in all the noise. If you were infotained listening to the free first hour, well, I'm not even going to talk about what the Plus Show contains today because some questions and topics were certainly planned to be behind closed doors. If you don't like that, you can start your own show that's fully publicly available and doesn't do subscriptions and talks about all these things and see how well it goes. But if you like what you heard, join plus get five, two hour shows a month instead of just the free first hour episodes. It's easy. Click the link at the top of your show notes. You can access the plus show feed, which you can then use to listen on any of the same old podcasting apps. Right below that is a link for the Patreon, which you can also use to access the full archive and ongoing episodes. But through that Patreon system, you can also listen to Plus on Spotify if that's your preferred way to listen. I have been putting video clips up from these episodes on the various social media places that THC has a presence. I might skip this one. I don't know. Or I might just not put it on YouTube at least. I don't think there's any safe 10-minute chunk. But I thank Joe for his time and insight. I look forward to future books and future conversations. And I wish the best for all regular people just trying to live that become victims of these sad situations, these cabal machinations and movements on the global chessboard. Collateral damage because you were born in one type of meat suit over another. And these people have some weird obsession about that. It's all unfortunate. But with that, let's uh, go to the meetup calendar before we call it in. On deck we have Oakland, California at Two Pitchers Brewing. We have Cape Girardeau, Missouri, Minglewood Brewery, Chateau Lafayette and Ottawa, Canada on November 18th as well. The Conspiracy Theorizers at High Springs Brewing in High Springs, Florida on December 2nd and December 3rd. Mount Cotton, Australia a hangout at Venman Bushland Park. If you want more details about any of those, hop on the website. If you're going to go, make sure you RSVP. It's only common courtesy. And if you didn't hear one near you, make one. Find some people that you can talk to about all this kind of stuff and make some new friends while your old ones go crazy. That's it for me. I've done my part. Your move, news, narrative, consumers, propaganda-controlled puppets and ignorant advocates for violence your fucking move.
0: i won't take it no i refuse if it's all right i'll keep my refuge i've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind gotta transfer
2: According to specifications of your local civil defense organization, the basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter
1: if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do?
0: Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, bunker. i